Roles in tech, software engineering, developers, data scientists, DBAs, these all require a deep level of technical understanding, the ability to go deep and understand very technical concepts. Now, the role of a developer advocate is the same, but then you pile on top of that the need to communicate those ideas, so to teach and to vary your messaging based on the listener's level. You wouldn't think that someone on the autistic spectrum or someone with ADHD would excel as a developer advocate. My guest today, Luce Carter, breaks that myth. Luce is a very successful developer advocate here at MongoDB. She shares her journey, the path she's taken to becoming a developer advocate, as well as some of the challenges she's faced along the way. Welcome to the MongoDB podcast. My name is Michael Lynn. Today's episode is entitled C Sharp Saved My Life with Luce Carter. Stay tuned. Hey folks, Mike here. I know the episode hasn't started yet, so how are you going to be able to provide a comment or a rating? But do me a favor. Once you listen, would you go back and provide a rating? Give me some feedback in a comment. Let me know what you think of the show. It's going to help me improve it. Thanks so much. Well, Luce, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. How are you today? I'm I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, it's not sunny in Manchester here in the UK anymore, but I'll take it. I'd like you to start by introducing yourself. Let folks know who you are and what you do. Sure. So I'm Luce Carter. I'm a developer advocate and a very happy developer advocate here at MongoDB. And I'm also a um, Microsoft MVP and a Twilio champion in my spare time. So I literally live and breathe advocacy. So how long have you been a Microsoft MVP? So I should get renewed next Friday, the 1st of July, when mm-hmm. we're recording this, not when it goes out. And so depending on when this goes out, I should hopefully be renewed for my fifth year and get my special blue ring that goes in a little trophy that we get. It's been a long time. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. That's no small feat. That's not easy to do, I know. It is and it isn't. I think it's easy for me to stand here and say, oh, you know, it feels easy because I guess it's because I've been doing it for so long that naturally my life just revolves around doing these things and getting involved and I love it. But yeah, it takes a lot of work to to get there, I suppose. Okay. So I also want to ask you about your time at MongoDB. How long have you been at MongoDB? Uh, Just over a year. I started on the 1st of June, 2021. Okay. And is there a specialization you have in the DevRel team? So I guess... .NET is something that I know more than other kind of languages and fra- um, I say frameworks. I guess there's, there's frameworks within .NET that I know better than others anyway. But I guess I'm kind of known for .NET. But I actually work on a subset of, of our advocacy team called Content, where we generate a lot of articles for our uh, MongoDB.com website. So a lot of the comparison articles or the tutorials you see on our .com will come from us. And so I, you kind of, it turns you into a bit of a generalist because you end up having to write high level articles and all sorts of things. So I've written about other databases, but I've also written TypeScript tutorials and I wouldn't call myself a TypeScript developer before the article. It's a great opportunity to learn different languages and environments. Yes. And I think in advocacy, one of the things that, that is kind of a given 
is a, is a core personality trait is a love to learn. Yeah, I think that's mandatory because we learn all the time. You know, we learn things to teach it. We learn things because we like it. We learn things from other people. Like there's, um, I'm getting my personal outside of work personal brand redone at the moment, and there's a joke that it's like always working, but then the word working is crossed out, and then it's just always learning. And that that's so true. I love that. That's great. How did you end up? As a developer advocate, is this your first role as a developer advocate? It is. What did you do previously? I worked as a, as a lot of us did in a past life a lot of the time, I think. I worked as a developer, but as I'm sure we'll kind of touch on a little bit for, as in other areas of this conversation, I suffered a lot from imposter syndrome. And so being a developer, it knocked my confidence quite a lot. Being a full-time developer, you know, it was... One of those, and I think a lot of it comes down to the ADHD diagnosis I finally got last year. My brain just didn't function well with working out code problems, especially on a legacy code base where the code base could be anything up to 15 years old. So I found that very, very full on and very stressful and it just wasn't bringing out the best in me and I was getting very burnt out. So within the same company, they were very kind to let me to just try and move to QA for a while, so testing. So directly before I became a developer advocate, I was actually working in QA, which might sound like a strange step, QA to advocacy, but actually QA is all about edge cases and thinking about the user experience and making sure that, you know, if your end user is trying something that you might, as a developer, you might not think of because you just think happy path, you know, what kind of things might happen just to make sure that people get the best experience. So that's kind of what I was doing directly before it. And then in terms of how I got into advocacy, a few years ago, I met an amazing cloud advocate at Microsoft called Jim Bennett who sort of mentored me and, and actually came up to Manchester to watch my first ever user group talk. It was a great support, but he was telling me all about what advocacy involves. And I was like, wait, this is just being paid to be a Microsoft MVP, basically. <laughs> like, this is, this is my jam. Like, teach people, learn things, create content. And so I spent a long time sort of trying to get into the circle. Um, and it wasn't until last year that I had a couple of wonderful uh, supporters in the community who already worked in advocacy, who were just keeping an eye out for me. And uh, one of them actually introduced me to Rita Rodriguez, who's now my boss. And so, yeah, that was kind of, it. I had one of those magical interview loops where the first time you talk to your future boss, it's like chatting to a friend you've known for years. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was a beautiful moment. And I've never looked back. And over a year into the job, still love it, still pinch myself like, wait, I'm paid to travel around and talk to people? Nice. <laughs> Luce, I'm so surprised. I'm shocked, really, because, you know, you just seem like such a natural. You seem like a natural developer advocate. You've got a great style of communication. You're, you know how to vary your delivery based on the audience. And that's like, I mean, to find that naturally. Did you always have that skill? It's hard to say. I mean... My mum would tell you that I was always performing when I was a child. So there's videos of me, you know, on a bandstand in Belgium, just dancing and singing with an invisible microphone by myself. So I guess I've always been a little bit of a performer. I think it's hard to say if it was learned or I had it naturally, but I guess I've also worked in tech support in the past. So I think that teaches you a bit of empathy and how to think like your average person and how to approach things and explain things in a way. Because a lot of the people that you're going to talk to out there, whether they're technical or non-technical, aren't necessarily going to fully understand what you're saying to them. You need to find a way to reach them where they're at. And so I'm a big fan of an analogy. You know, you used some language when we started to talk, when we did the pre-interview. You actually shared something that was pretty shocking. You, you mentioned that C-sharp saved your life. Yep. And, and I, I want you to share that with the audience if you're willing. 
Of course, I, I'm an open book. I've actually written a blog post about this. It was the first blog I ever wrote on my website. So I'm an open book. People can ask me anything and I'll be very open and, and honest in my responses. So yeah, so kind of as well as ADHD that I mentioned before, it's never been officially diagnosed, but it was always mentioned that I might be on the, on the autistic spectrum and probably have Asperger's. And so growing up, knowing how to interact with other children and knowing how they, you know, them knowing how to interact with me because I was a little bit different, we just never got to a place where the pieces fit together. And so I was very lonely. I remember I must have been about age six or seven in the equivalent of what Americans would know as fourth grade when my teacher was actually saying to my mum, like, oh, you know, we have, she's got a very black, black view of the world. And it was because, you know, in a, in a class of odd numbers, when you had to pair up to walk up to the lunch hall every day, I was always the one that was never going to find someone to walk up with. And so I just already knew, okay, I'm just going to be the loner. And so I spent a lot of time alone. Um, you know, I've got memories of trying to play with other kids in the playground and then basically telling me to go away. So I spent a lot of time on my own and I was lucky. I was in schools where it was just being on your own more than actual like bullying. But then as I got older and people become sort of preteens and teenagers, things start to get nasty. And so I didn't have, you know, it could have been worse, but I didn't have very nice experiences at school, especially I was at boarding school for a couple of years. And so you can't escape it. You know, you can't just it's okay, I can go home, I can hide in my bedroom, I can do whatever. Nope, your bedroom, you're surrounded by other people who don't like you. So that was quite tough. So yeah, just growing up, sort of it got a bit worse. And then lots of sort of things happened in my teenage years. But again, I just didn't have any friends, really, not in real life. I had a few thanks to the internet. So God bless the internet. But you know, in real life friends who really care about you that make time for you didn't exist. And so, you know, as hormones start to kick in and you go through teenage years and you start to get a bit more independence and you you start to understand the world around you a bit more, I realized how alone I was. And so, yeah, I got very depressed and very lonely and I struggled a lot. And so, yeah, you know, I was, you know, suicidal and very, very unhappy in life. But then I went to what we in the UK call sixth form college, which is sort of a you go, you can go when you're sort of 16, 17, 18, and it's, you can do more vocational practical courses. It doesn't have to be the standard, like equivalent, like GCSEs and A levels you do here in the UK. And so I went to a couple, I went a couple of times and it just didn't quite fit for me because I was trying to do mainstream education in a sixth form college. And then when I was 19, I went to a sixth form college for the third time, but this time I actually did uh, purely IT. It was a nothing but computers because I loved it. And in my first year, we did something called, it was a equivalent of programming 101. I can't remember what the class was actually called, but where I first got taught, hey, write some code. Here's, you know, your first equivalent of console at write line or, you know, I can't remember what, the, what it is in uh, Node. But yeah, you know, I started to learn code. I was like, oh, this is cool. I've used computers my whole life. I kind of, they understand me and I understand them because they're logical. And this is cool. I know the command prompt and I'm making stuff appear on the command prompt. I like this. <laughs> and then someone else in my class who had been programming for a long time in C Sharp, he said to me, okay, well, we're learning VB uh, VB6.net in this class. He was like, no, no hate on VB6, but it sucks. Come learn C Sharp. <laughs> and so, you know, he'd seen that I had this interest. And even though we'd never normally interacted, he cared enough about programming and saw the joy that it was bringing to me to go, hey, like, come, come learn this language. And so... You know, he would teach me in class sometimes, but then he'd also start to invite me to his house. And then, you know, you don't sit there coding like in a lesson 24-7. So then we start playing video games together. And so I started to make a friend. And then he introduced me to his social circle. So, yeah, at 19 years old, I made my first ever real life friends who did all those little social cues you look out for. Like, you know, I walk quite slowly because I'm short. And so, you know, a lot of people 
you know, they'd look back and make sure they'd either slow down for me or look back to make sure I was still there. And I'm like, okay, I'm not used to this. I like it. But yeah, so I'd gone from literally nothing and no friends in real life, very, very cripplingly lonely, hating life, not really understanding the world to finally having people. And it, it felt good. Yeah. And that's because of learning C sharp. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a great story. And I appreciate you opening up about that. I mean, I, I think it can be really powerful for folks listening. And maybe there's even some folks that, that may be on the spectrum listening in. And I want to ask, what do you wish people knew about uh, autism? What do you wish people knew about autism and Asperger's that, uh, that isn't widely known? Uh, that is a very good question. I think the main thing that maybe is known, but sort of people don't necessarily think about is not everyone is the same. Not everyone is going to sit there in a corner rocking back and forth because it reminds you of being in the womb in a safe place where you moved around. Not everyone is going to get excited and flap their hands. I do sometimes, but yeah, everyone's different and not everyone is socially awkward. Like, you know, literally I'm on the spectrum and I, I was just on stage in front of quite a few thousand people. Like not everyone is the same. And so don't go into an interaction where you find out that someone is on the spectrum. Don't go into those interactions assuming that they're going to be like someone else that you've met. We're all different. Sometimes we're introverted. Sometimes we're extroverted. Just get to know them as a person. Just treat them like you treat anybody else. And just maybe if they say something a little bit weird, just have a bit of understanding. Yeah. Well, it is a spectrum, right? Absolutely. Yes. What's your favorite part about being a developer advocate? There's so many parts I love. The sharing the knowledge, I think, because... It's so exciting to learn about something that you, you know, it's like, oh, now have that moment in your head where you have a light bulb. You're like, oh, people will get value from knowing about this. And go, oh, and then being able to make, make content about it. And the thing with advocacy is that we can make so many different types of content. We can write a tutorial, we can write an article, we can make a YouTube video, we can do a Twitch stream or a live stream about it, we can give a talk about it. We're supported in advocacy to do whatever type of content we think is best. And so, yeah, we can get inspired by amazing things and then get paid to go and tell people about it. <laughs> yeah. Do you think advocacy, developer relations, is particularly well-suited for someone with the condition of, of autism or someone who is on the spectrum? It's hard to say because one thing, and obviously DevRel covers so much more than just advocacy, but I can, you know, I can speak for advocacy. A lot of, it, it depends because advocacy, what your role involved can change a lot. There's themes, but it can change between different companies you work for. So there'll be some advocacy roles where you're expected to give talks in places. And to some people on the spectrum, that is just way more, you know, interacting with people than they can handle. But I think, you know, as, as people, we naturally are known for, you know, they, whether it's hyper-focus or, you know, obsessive interests or whatever. We're known to get passionate about something we care about. So even, you know, I couldn't stand here and say, oh, yeah, if you're on the autistic spectrum, get into advocacy. What I can say is if you find someone on the spectrum who wants to get into advocacy, grab them, nurture them and lift them up because you'll find people that love your products and put their all in in a way that you won't get with anybody else. Mm, I can relate to that for sure. Do you feel like, you know, knowing your personality type and knowing some of the the conditions that you, I won't say suffer from, but but are present, some of the conditions that are present in your personality, do you feel like some of those present a real challenge for some of the demands that you find in developer relations? Yes and no. I'd say yes, because 
you know, there'll be times when, you know, we may be at a conference for quite a few days and we've had enough and we just need a break. And actually what we should be doing is taking that very small window of opportunity to talk to developers about our products, about their experiences, you know, maybe things that they've struggled with or why they don't use our products or something. But it's also hard to say because obviously everyone on the spectrum is different, but also I have ADHD too. And so it's very hard to say what parts of my personality are just me, what parts of my personality come from the spectrum, which parts come from ADHD. So it's, it's you know, there might be challenges, but it's hard to say what they are specifically because everyone's different and I don't know which parts fall under which category. But yeah, certainly, you know, there's challenges in the role. I love it. Don't get me wrong. But like, we've just come back from World, our developer conference, and it was absolutely amazing. But I've been home over a week and I'm still not fully recovered mentally because it was way too many people and way too much noise and sound. And it was exciting. But it, yeah, it's very, very tiring. It's tiring for most people, I think, let alone people who have a very limited number of spoons. Have you heard spoon theory? No, tell me. Okay, so spoon theory was started, I don't know when it was, many years ago now, by someone who had, I believe it was ME or chronic fatigue syndrome, who, or it might have been MS, one of those, was explaining to a friend why they didn't have energy to do something. And they were in a restaurant, a diner at the time, so they had spoons on the table. So what they were saying is, you get a set number of spoons every day, and every time that you do something or you interact with somebody, one of those spoons gets used up. And you can get new spoons by resting or doing whatever it is you need to do, but you only have a finite number of spoons a day. And so some things like interacting with a very big crowd can take a lot of spoons a day. And sometimes you just need a bit of downtime, which, quite frankly, in a really super busy place in an, an event, which is all about our customers, you know, don't get me wrong, of course, we get support to take a break because we work in a very supportive company and very supportive team who, you know, don't think it's, you know, a stretch to say that we're like a family in many ways and we look out for each other, but there's still some expectations and there's just an environment that you can't escape from that definitely uses up your spoons faster. <laughs> I love that analogy. And again, here you are explaining it really well, explaining that theory and uh, I can relate to it. So you mentioned ADHD, you mentioned Asperger's and you mentioned imposter syndrome. What do you, what do you think the relationship between those conditions is? I mean, I've never thought about it too much or done too much research. And, and I sort of, again, because so, it affects people so differently, I, you know, I try not to speak for everyone. But for me, I think a lot of it comes down to we hold, you know, in ADHD, a lot of the problems that we have. And one of the reasons a lot of the time when we have coaching or we might talk to a therapist is that we, we have this, our brain's always running, which means that we've always got this, you know, things going on in our head. And so we think, oh, okay. I want to be able to do this, this, you know, X, Y, Z. But sometimes our brains just can't focus long enough. So we've always got this battle inside ourselves of, I am just not achieving enough. Like, if I could just get my ADHD under control, I could achieve so much more. And that's a battle I've had for a long time, and I still have. And people around me, you know, even my boss will say to me, you're doing a great job, you know, you're beating yourself up over this, we're not. But it's something that you battle with. And so I think imposter syndrome, to a lot of people, they see it as the, oh, you or, you know, I don't belong here. Someone's going to suss me out and I'm going to get fired. But actually, that's a very niche imposter syndrome type. There's way more to it than just that one type. And so a lot of it is just, oh, I shouldn't, you know, not that certainly for me, my imposter syndrome is very much around like, oh, I can't do this. Why do I bother? 
And a lot of it comes down to the challenges that my different conditions give me mean that I struggle to break things down sometimes. And so if I can't break it down enough, not only do I feel useless, but it takes me longer and then I feel guilty for taking too long. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I think I suffer from some of that as well. And I'm sure many people do. So I want to ask you, what advice would you have for someone who who feels like they may have some of these conditions? Talk to people about it, whether it's just talking to your loved ones and your friends and people you trust just to get it off your chest. Because the more we talk about things in life, the better. I don't know a single person in life whose mental health has improved by bottling things up. So talking is a good start. And then do some research. I mean, I can't speak for other countries, but here in the UK, because it's healthcare is free at the point of delivery, there's just not enough funding for it. And so it can be a very long wait to see anyone for a diagnosis unless you're privileged enough to afford to go private. And so it can take a while to get help. So do some research, make sure that, you know, okay, are you sort of hitting certain, for the certainly for ADHD, are you hitting certain criteria? Is it something that you've maybe was there in childhood? Because ADHD doesn't develop in adulthood. Some people think they've got ADHD, but it's just because there's so many gadgets and the internet around. We have an information overload and people just get overwhelmed by all the things they, they get in. And so they're like, oh, I must have ADHD. No, no, no. You're just like normal society. There's too much information. Yeah. But yeah, you know, do some research and things like, again, I can't speak for anywhere else, but in the UK, especially as an adult, autism and Asperger's can be a very hard diagnosis to get because there's no treatment. So they pretty much just go, well, there's no treatment. What are we going to be able to do for you? We haven't really got the budget. Nah, deal with it yourself. Mm. Like, so, you know, be prepared in some countries that it can be quite a challenge, but there's no reason why you can't do some research if you think you've got these conditions Find support groups, find resources online that talk about coping mechanisms or management techniques. You know, I spend a lot of time reading productivity uh, books and they're not aimed at ADHD. They're just aimed at general people. But there's no reason why those things can't work for me either. I want to ask you about what's on your plate today. I know you're writing a book. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in your world today. Yeah. So like you say, so I'm writing a book. So last year... After I gave, it was last August, I think, after I gave my first ever talk on, on a MongoDB uh, product, which was actually intro to MongoDB and .NET, local user group here in the northwest of England, run by an old uni friend of mine. Someone at A-Press, the publisher, reached out to me and said, like, hey, you know, I work, I'm the database editor here at A-Press. Do you, do you think there's enough scope in this topic to write a book about it? And I was like, yeah, well, maybe. I'm not sure. I think so. Oh, you know, I could sort of add quick pictures in my head of roughly what the structure might be. And so I was like, sure. And so then for some reason, rather than just going, yes, I think so, I also decided to be the one that will write it. So we worked together to build a really good proposal because the way he sees it is if you do a good proposal up front, then all you're doing when you're writing the book is filling in the gaps and you know what's already know what's going to be in there. Plus a good proposal has more chance of being accepted. So yeah, so I started writing that at the end of last year. That is beginning MongoDB Atlas with .NET. I don't have a published date at this point. It will be some point end of the year, early next year, I guess. But that's out of my control. All I can do is write the draft. But yeah, you know, that's it's been a challenge. You know, I've, I've had a, some periods this year where I've not been as focused on writing the book because there's been other things going on. But it's been really great to write and it's given me a chance to learn more about our products and and the writing process and knowing that it's eventually I'll have something I can be proud of at the end, which... I mean, I'm proud of lots of things I do, but the book is just a nice legacy that my mum can have on the bookshelf and go, hey, look. <laughs> <laughs> That's super exciting. 
Yeah, it is. I, it's a lot. Like I say, it's a lot of work. And you know, anyone thinking of writing a book, if you've got something that you think would be interesting and you want to write about, do it. If you're like some people who've reached out to me, whose instant question is, "How much money do you think you'll make from it?" You're going in with the wrong reasons. A book will not make you money. You do it for a legacy, for pride, for enjoyment, because you want to share something, not for money. So, Luce, it's been a great conversation so far. I am curious about the transition you made uh, from job to job, from a developer to QA, and now into developer advocacy. Give us give us your thoughts on your first year as a developer advocate. It's been a roller coaster. It's been the best kind of roller coaster. You know, it's been the adrenaline rush where people go, "Oh, I want to get on that ride again." But yeah, I mean, it's great. We work at a great company, and so when I first joined the team last year. I was met with a Trello board of, of, you know, week by week onboarding guidance. So articles to read, videos to watch, courses to take, people to talk to. And so, you know, my first few weeks were just spent getting into, getting into the job, getting to know our products because, you know, I, I always joke about this to other people. But I'm like, genuinely, I didn't, I knew of MongoDB, but hadn't used it before I joined. And so there was a lot of learning about it more. I did a bit of prep for my interviews, don't get me wrong, but actually using the products and fully understanding them was a first. So, you know, my first few weeks I spent doing that, which was amazing and a really great chance to get technical and try things out and learn things and and have a guided path because sometimes onboarding can be a bit of a wild west of, oh, God, there's so much information. But thankfully, it was made easy. And uh, in my first week, I actually wrote a blog post about my first week in the job. You did? I did. Yeah. And then one of my colleagues has since said to me, oh, I read that blog post before I joined our team. And I was like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get a lot of feedback from folks. You know, I know there are folks listening that are considering working at MongoDB. We're hiring like crazy across the board. And what advice would you have for somebody considering a, a job at MongoDB? Honestly, do it. I know that sounds like, you know, it might sound easy because it's like, well, I'm on our podcast and I work for them. So of course, I'm going to say that. But like people that know me outside of work will also know that I sing our company's praises outside of work too, because it is a great company. You know, we're doing really well. So, you know, nothing, no one's too worried about anything at the moment. Our products are great. Customers love our stuff. We've got a really great culture that's really supportive. And it doesn't matter whether you have a first time conversation with someone in a completely different team to advocacy, you end up having a great chat. Like I remember the first time I spoke to one of our PMMs, which is a product marketing manager in Realm, and we ended up talking about Notion and swimming, like nothing to do with work. It's just you just find a bunch of like-minded people. And yeah, it's so rare to have a negative interaction with anybody at the company that when they do happen, you have a bit of a, wait, what moment? Like <laughs> It's a brilliant place to work. So you know, if you're wondering, uh, when I got my last job, uh, where I was a developer first and then a QA, I was wanting to change jobs because I missed .NET and some other things going on. And so a friend of mine that already worked at the company, I actually, you know, this is pre-pandemic life a long time ago, I actually took him out for a beer and said, hey, you know, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? And so I just asked him loads of questions about the company. So, you know, do if you're interested in working for us, one, do it, but two, don't hesitate to reach out to one of us and just ask us about it. You know, we're all open books, I think. We'll all talk about our experiences, positive, negative, a lot of the time we can also, you know, help with referrals. So sometimes having someone say, hey, this this person would be really good for this role can go a long way. Yeah, it's worth just talking to us. We don't bite. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the greatest thing you can do. Reach out. I mean, we're all pretty public. How do you like to engage socially? 
Uh, so I, yeah, I'm on Twitter as at loosecarter1, which is the most common place to find me. I, I'm sad that I don't have at Luz Carter on Twitter, but unfortunately someone else has that with fewer followers than me. So I'm like, damn, give it to me. Um, <laughs> but yes, I am at Luz Carter when on Twitter, which is the best place to find me. I don't lock my DMs down to followers only or anything like that. If you want to talk to me, drop me a message. I will read it pretty quickly and you'll get a response pretty quickly too. Because a lot of the time when you reach out to someone with a question, it's not because you want to wait a week for a response. It's because it's on your mind in that moment. And as an ADHD sufferer who not only will just want to get it processed, but also understands that struggle, I feel very strongly about trying to get back to people quickly. So if you've ever got a question, if I can't answer it, I'll be honest, but I'll reply quickly and be honest and say, hey, I don't know, but leave it with me. Yeah. At Luce Carter one on Twitter. You can also reach out to me at M Lynn. And you mentioned that um, you rarely have negative interactions and there's really, it's really hard to find something negative to say about MongoDB. But I do want to ask you, look, in, in, in the interest of, of keeping it real, what's the hardest part of your job? What's the really difficult thing that you do today? Keeping up. Not in terms of like day to day, but because we are such a hyper growth company you know, and we are doing well, things evolve. We go along with what, you know, what's needed. We improve constantly to help our developers and our customers in general. So things change a lot. So for example, at World, you know, we've now got some products that used to be under Realm, but are now more sensibly under the Atlas App Services heading, which is brilliant. But then it means that the book I'm writing, I need to do update. Like <laughs> Things change constantly and you have to ride the wave and also be prepared for things that you know from last week won't always be true this week. The cadence is not quite that aggressive in terms of weekly, but things can change very quickly on a small level and on a much larger scale. And so you just have to be prepared to go along with that. But, you know, it can be difficult at times to kind of keep up with, oh, it's not MQL anymore, Mongo query language. It's now Mongo query API because that better describes what it actually is. And that makes sense. But, you know, when you get in the habit of calling it MQL, for example, you have to remember to stop doing it or saying that something is Realm and it's not Realm anymore. It's Atlas App Services. Uh, it's a very specific example, but it, you just get the idea that you have to go along with the ride because things will change. So the biggest challenge is probably just keeping up with those changes, being aware of them, remembering to update things that you've created, remembering to change it in the things you're currently creating and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that's uh, any job worth having is going to stretch you. It's going to challenge you. And I think that's true for, for jobs at MongoDB. It has been for me at least. Well, Lucy, this has been a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you again for spending time with me. Is there any parting thoughts you want to share with the audience before we wrap up? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's been it's been a blast. It's, sorry it's taken so long, but we've got here in the end. <laughs> <laughs> I think the one bit of advice I would give to people, and it might sound really obvious, is just don't be afraid to be you. Don't hide yourself away because you think, oh, like, you know, things aren't, aren't what I expect. The tech industry is so vast, so there's so many opportunities to do different things, and you never know what doors will open. You know, when I started at MongoDB last year, I never expected to be writing a book or having appeared as a demo or in the keynote at World this year, like that's crazy. So just be yourself because people will see your skills, will see your talent, will appreciate you as a person. And you never have to be that teenager again, hiding in their bedroom, desperately lonely because you're a bit different. Come join the world of, you know, where being different is okay. And just embrace who you are because, you know, everyone's wonderful in their own way. And the world can be a great place if you let it. Beautiful. Luz, thanks once again. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks to Luce for joining me today, and thank you to the listeners. If you want to learn more about Luce Carter, you can visit her website, loosecarter.co.uk. You can also find her on Twitter, at Luce Carter one Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.